One of the topics that came up in Sunday school this morning as we were talking about salvation and God's sovereignty and creation is, you know, does as God knits and forms us in the womb, does he bestow upon us certain character or personality? And the answer is yes. So we get to see a variety of personalities amongst us. God is a God of variety. He's very creative, and I appreciated the variety of personalities that we got to witness as Madison and Lily made their offering to the Lord. And I also am grateful, along with Kevin, for an enthusiastic time of worship. It was good to hear your voices. And there's a little surprise because we sang a song that I thought I was familiar with, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And then it took a turn. And uh, I was turning my eyes on other things, the morning and heaven and so forth. I didn't even know the rest of that song existed. So, Noah, is that like the original song or did somebody add to it? Do you know? Somebody added to it. Okay. All right. Well, it was good. It's great. Good lyrics. Appreciate that. So we are in the book of 2 Corinthians and we'll be in chapter 4 this morning. And as you know, Paul has, it's, it's in Paul's heart as he's talking to this community of believers in Corinth, those who have given their hearts to Christ, they've turned to the Lord. It's important for him as an apostle, as a spokesperson for God, that they know the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant because it, our understanding of these covenants need to be proper in order for us to properly worship God. And so he has explained to us that they're not in competition and that the old covenant, the promise that God made to Israel, was a glorious thing among men, among the earth. Absolutely, wonderfully, powerfully, supernaturally glorious. But when Christ came with the new covenant, that's the message now. And his ministry and his coming as God in the flesh is so glorious that the glory of the old covenant simply pales in comparison to the glory of the new covenant. So now, as we sang, we do turn our eyes towards Jesus. That's what that's why we're here. That's why God created us to worship him, to adore him as we are doing This morning to behold his glory. And as we saw last time, as we gaze at the Lord, the apostle is encouraging people gaze at Christ, behold Christ, look at Christ, press into Christ and and a change will come about as we find ourselves taking the time to do that. And the changes that we looked at last time was that we'll find our hearts, we'll find our purpose. He says we don't lose heart because of who Christ is. And we also found that as Paul gazes at Christ and looks at Christ and his character and his essence and his being, that it causes him to see the sin in his own heart. And so he renounces it because he knows it's displeasing to the beautiful Savior. And then in our last sermon, we also saw where Uh, Gazing at Christ, pressing in to know God, changes our hearts in that we have a new love and appreciation for truth. Truth is extremely important. And as we look at God and understand God, comprehend God, our hearts will desire and long for truth. That's what that's the kind of changes that we can expect to see in a community of believers. Uh, Courage. 
courageous hearts, people who renounce their sin, see it for what it is, and then a people who long and desire truth. So Paul's been talking about people turning to the Lord and God removing the veil. And of course, he's talking about the glory of salvation. But then the, the, the message, this letter to Corinth, changes a little bit, changes directions. Because whereas on one side you have the veil being removed, people seeing God for the first time, changing their entire worldview, understanding that God is the creator of all things. And so you have people adoring Christ. But Paul acknowledges you also have people not turning to the Lord in the world that we live in. You also have people that are who or who remain veiled and don't see this glory. And so he wants to inform us. He wants to teach us about that reality. And so that's the direction that the passage will take this morning. This is uh, this is a glorious side of what God does, but it's a sobering side. It's a sobering reality of the world that we live in, that there are people who will not or do not turn to the Lord. There are people in our world, obviously, who still have the veil. They don't see what we as believers see. God, they are not as, as they are not enlightened to the things by the power of the spirit as we are. So I want to read, I think I'll go ahead and just start with, with verse 1, even though we covered that last time, because it, it communicates where Paul is headed and what Paul's thinking. So we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through, I mean, I'll go ahead and want, read 1 through 6. Therefore, having the ministry, this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways... We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. In the face of Jesus Christ. So you see you have the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But then you have the sobering truth of those, as Paul puts it, who are perishing. And he's continuing on with this metaphor that he started chapters ago with the idea of being veiled, and also the ideas of darkness and light. So this metaphor, this analogy continues to grow. Paul's using it, I guess you could say, to drive home truth. And initially, he used it as 
pertaining to what happened in real life when the, new, when the Old Covenant was given and the law of Moses was read, Moses had a veil over his face because he had been in the presence of God and when he came down off the mountain to be in the glory of God as he was, his face shone. So there was an illumination to him and so he veiled his face. But then what we found... And this is real life things. This is not the metaphor. This is what really happened. But when he read God's word, when he spoke for God, the veil was removed. And the idea is we need to see God clearly, hear God clearly. There, there, there shouldn't be anything blocking us or obscuring us from the word of God and the law of God. Then Paul grows that metaphor and he says that even in his day, when the law of Moses is read in the synagogues and so forth, that the veil remains. Now he's talking about not the literal veil of Moses, but he's talking about people's hearts and the sin in people's hearts. You know, sin means darkness. It's it's analogous to darkness, to obscurity, sin blocks our vision of God. It, it, it dampens our knowledge and our ability to understand and comprehend. And so people, he says, even though you're in the presence of God, you're hearing pure truth from God and, and, and you're in the presence of God's love, you're veiled to it. You're not getting it. You're not feeling it. You're not understanding it. And the reason is that dark veil is sin in your heart that you refuse to renounce you refuse to turn to the lord and and the lesson there was that even though people humanity can literally be hearing the truth of god his supernatural revelation it doesn't mean that they're being transformed it doesn't mean that they're believing and and the fault is not that god did not pursue the fault was that they did not turn they they refused to hear and to heed and so that's, that's this metaphor growing here. And then Paul expands it to say that those that are not turning to the Lord, those who are choosing to remain veiled, are what he calls the perishing. And that's a dismal term. That's a dismal term to, you know, we, we've, demo, we've divided humanity. Scripture does. Scripture divides humanity in different ways. One of the ways is you have the, the sheep and the goats. And, and here you have those who, remember, in the new covenant, the spirit brings life, whereas the law condemned, and yet the spirit brings newness of life. And so you have the spirit bringing newness of life, but then you have also the perishing part of humanity. Those that aren't understanding because of a hardness of heart, and therefore they're not transformed. And so Paul basically gives us a little teaching, if you will. Why? You know, if, if God is so glorious, wonderful, beautiful, as Scripture asserts that he is, how could there be any such thing as an atheist in the world? How could people not be drawn to the beauty and the splendor, even when we know that we, we long for it. There's a part of us that's created in the image of God that longs for beauty, longs for goodness, even though we reject the giver of it. How is that even possible? 
That's a fair question, and Paul answers that or gives us at least some uh, illumination on that. When he says, and even if our gospel is veiled, verse 3, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Those that are living according to the flesh. Those that are refusing God. And it's such a powerful thing, this veil upon the heart and the, and the sin is so bewitching, if you will, so powerful that, that when God took on flesh, so you have, you have God in the flesh and Christ, the exact representation of God, walking upon the earth. Literally, His feet of flesh are trotting on the soil in the promised land. And so you have people looking at him, hearing his voice, watching how, his, how he thinks, how he acts, how he eats, and not connecting, making the connection that they are beholding God the Son. And really, they should be on their faces before him. He's so glorious, wonderful, and pure. So merciful and so loving. And yet, because of the hardness of heart, they did not make that connection at all. As a matter of fact, for some, Christ was an enemy. So that gives us an idea how far away our own hearts, how far away our own conclusions and thinking can take us away from God. That when He's right in our faces, we still do not see Him. Well, there are some blinding powers that are taking place when this happens. I've talked about the first one as being sin. You can't read Scripture without being confronted with sin, the power of sin, and what it does to our hearts and how it corrupts God's good things, even in our own being. God uh, created man good. And yet here we are living in a world of evil. God created man with the capacity to choose good or choose evil. And we know that. We know that God created all things good. He, of course, first created the angels and then Satan and we believe a third of his angels. Satan took his God-given abilities and used them for wrong purposes. And rebelled against God. And he was cast down. And then we have the same scenario. We have, once again, God creating uh, Adam and Eve as good, holy, perfect, and pure. However, with the ability or the propensity to choose evil. And so he he even puts, knowing this, puts uh, boundaries in the garden. With harsh consequences. Knowing the possibility. And... Unfortunately, Adam and Eve gave in to evil. They used their choosing powers, if you will, to give in to evil. And they believed Satan and they sinned against God. One of the burning questions in Christianity is where did evil come from? Where did evil come from? If God is pure, there's no guile in him. And I think it's plain and clear that God did not create evil. It's not in him. How can he create something that's not in himself? He did not create evil. He's good. He is the opposite of evil. He's the opposite of unrighteousness. He's righteous. 
then where did evil come from? That's a great question. And it's, it's a question that burns in many people's minds and hearts. And I'll tell you the answer. I'll tell you my answer. This side of heaven, we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. And you can study and look and study and look and think you kind of know and have it. But I would say the absolute bottom line, when you start picking apart different theories, and my, I had a theory that recently was picked apart. Now i got to start from scratch, but I might talk about that a little bit in a, in a further sermon. However, we don't know for sure. It, it remains a mystery this side of heaven. We know for sure that God hates evil. And yet we know for sure in Scripture He's revealed it to us that evil is necessary for God's plan from the, before the foundation of the world. And that's what we're left with. But what we need, for the, need to know for the purposes of this message is that when man rebelled against God, it changed his nature. We call it a sin nature. And that means... It has permeated everything about our being. The way we think, the way we feel, the way we relate, the way we act, our choices, decisions, our desires, our knowledge, the way we know everything. It's like if you had a, a, a bottle of clear or, say, a glass of clear water, what it means to be de- de- depraved, totally depraved, it doesn't mean we're as evil as we possibly can be, like all we do is evil. But if you take that clear glass of water and you put one drop of black water coloring in it. It, it, it permeates the whole thing. So there's not an ounce of us that is not uh, touched by sin. That's why Scripture calls it a sin nature. So it's a part of us now. It's not something that when Adam and Eve took on sin, if you will, when they made that decision, it became a part of them, their essence and their being. It's not something we can take off like a suit. Oh, I'm going to take my sin off and leave it over here, at least for the day, to give myself a break. And I'll put it back on later. It's not something that, that, that gets on us. It comes from us. It can get on us from other people's sin. But it's something that comes from our own hearts. We don't, we don't look at God as He deserves to be. We don't, we don't raise our thinking about Him and knowing Him. We don't feel as passionate for God as we should. So, Scripture says we all fall short of the glory of God. So, our sin nature is a state of being. Whether you're doing anything right or wrong or not, we are born, Scripture says, in sin. Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So the Apostle Paul puts himself right in there. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like... The rest of mankind. So 
God's assessment on humanity is comprehensive. It's sweeping. What does God see when he looks down from heaven? From his perspective, he sees human beings, all of humanity, who are born with a sin nature. Of course, that sin is offensive to him. Even the Apostle Paul puts himself, he doesn't exclude himself, but I was a, a, person, I'm a Jew of the Old Covenant of the promise. He says, no, I am a part of this. I was a child of wrath. I gave my life to sin. I lived according to my sin nature and gave into it. I even desired it. There is none righteous, no, not one, is the assessment And so Paul, that's what Paul means by perishing. It's those that remain under God's wrath, God's death sentence, God's judgment. So I mentioned one of the most uh, challenging or complex questions that we are faced with as Christians. And it is sometimes some people call, you know, the question of where does evil come from? The Achilles heel of Christianity because or, or theodicy. So they. They reason that, look, if God is good, perfectly good, then he must not be an all-powerful God because, look, he didn't stop evil. He couldn't do it. He, he wanted to because he hates it, but he just was too weak to get in there and stop it. Or God is powerful. He could have stopped it, but he didn't. And so, therefore, God is not good. So some people call that the Achilles heel of Christianity. And there's a, something we have to wrestle with. Scripture. Well, here's another one. We think about God's wrath. We think about the sweeping assessment of humanity as being children of wrath. A lot of times we hear the question, well, okay, but what about that six-year-old, seven-year-old child, that innocent child in the remotest part of the earth? whether it's in Asia or Africa, one of the continents of the globe, who has never heard the good news, never been given an opportunity to turn to Christ. What about that innocent, poor child? Will they go to hell? That's a great question. And I would answer that question with this. No. That is innocent child wherever they may be found in this world will not go to hell. God will not send that innocent child to hell. But then I would say this. Find that innocent child for me. Find one innocent child. According to Scripture, will we find that one innocent child? Somewhere, whatever age or place in this earth that is not deserving of hell, according to Scripture? Or do we see an assessment of those that have not turned to the Lord as perishing? And the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans that without the gospel, just by natural revelation, just by being alive in this world, There is enough knowledge of God that makes us worthy of condemnation. And it's so evident 
that we have to suppress it. That's what mankind does all over the globe. False religions, atheists, whatever it is. That's what I did before I turned to the Lord. I suppressed the knowledge of God. So we want to... Paul is helping us understand our own hearts, understand the world through truth and not draw our own conclusions. It's a dangerous thing to draw conclusions about God without hearing God or listening to God's assessment of himself or revelation of his self. So Paul says, my ministry, and I take great delight in it, it's just a grace of God. I didn't do anything to be the one, the servant that gets to tell the world the good news of Christ, that gets to tell those that are perishing, those that are in darkness, that a light has come. And you can believe in this light and turn to this light. And how many will be saved? How many will turn to the Lord? Scripture says, not many. Not many. Many are called, Matthew twenty two fourteen. For many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew 7, again, 13 through 14. You, you enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those that are perishing. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And then we, we're learning in Galatians that... So, so what happens to our tendency as man is to try to make the gate too wide. Oh, anybody can get to heaven. Or we... Take the opposite approach and make it narrower than God did and say, well, yeah, you can get to heaven, but you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. And the gate gets so small, you can't fit through it. How do we find it? Well, merciful, loving God initiates something in us. We, we have to be come upon by the Spirit of God. And we'll look at that at last, how that works. But basically, how can people be saved and turn to the Lord? Well, because of the message of the gospel. God sends messengers for people to hear the truth. And it's the living Word of God that's empowered by the Spirit of God, which is something supernatural. And it comes upon us. It enlightens us. And where we once had darkness and dumbness... Now we have knowledge and knowing. And those, Paul goes from place to place. He believes this is how it works. He shares the good news and the ministry of the new covenant. So he goes from place to place to place. That was his calling we learned about in Galatians. Before he was born, God called him to this. And now he's fulfilling his calling. As one who has the message of the good news and he brings it to the Gentiles and that can take him all over the world. He went long, far and hard with this burning passion of the gospel message. And that is humanity is perishing, but there is forgiveness of sins. There's forgiveness for you who have suppressed the truth who have chosen to love sin more than your creator, God. There's forgiveness for you. And you can live for his glory. And so Paul went from place to place with this good news, and he preached Christ crucified, is what he would say. Christ crucified. Well, why would Paul even bring this, this up? 
why is he talking about the message and the light and the veiled and the unveiled and the messengers? You know, we, we consider ourselves, we preach Christ as Lord and not ourselves, but ourselves as servants for Christ's sake, for your sake. Why is he bringing this up? Because he knows in real life that as the gospel message goes out, as, as evangelists, witnesses, disciples, whatever, preach it, there will be those that remain under the veil. There will be those that choose not to turn to God. And so what do we do with that? The temptation here that we have to be careful of is to realize that in the way things work in God's world are on the spiritual plane. And the problem is not the gospel message. And our temptation is to say people aren't believing in the gospel message I got to do something to this message. I got to tweak it so that more people will come into the church and believe in Christ. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does not want us to do. And even more so in Galatians when he says, look, there is one gospel. And even if an angel comes and tells you any different. Don't even let me tell you any different than what has been revealed. That's how important it is to stick to the good news as Christ has revealed it. And if we don't understand the spiritual dynamic that's going on, our temptation might be to change it. And we see that, unfortunately, in our day and age. In the church, the gospel message can be what we would call uh, watered down. So you see a problem, and it's a real problem, and people with a heart for God, pastors, leaders, disciples, everybody, we want as many people to come to Christ as possible. We want our church to be filled. And so what? how do we fill the church? Well, some draw the conclusion as that, well, we got to look at the message. People aren't coming because the message is too offensive. So we got to start talking about the blood. That's a mess. People don't want to hear about the blood of Christ. Now, people don't want to have to, they don't want to hear about having to obey God and, 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 and die to self. Let's just talk about the love. Let's just build up. Let's just say how you can be fulfilled. You can have the desires of your heart. Let's just talk about that. And so the gospel message is tweaked to, to, Make it more believable, if you will. You even have um, some preachers today are trained in more motivational, inspirational speaking. And they can fill churches with that. I mean, there's an effective aspect to a dynamic of communicating and the words you choose to use and the words you edit out of Scripture or your message or the gospel. And it's editing the gospel. To make it more lovable, more, more embraceable, if you will, to those that are veiled. And I'm not saying that the intent is necessarily evil behind it. I think a lot of times it's, it's a heart that really wants to pack the church with people. But it's a dangerous path to take. Because 
It's, it's the wrong assumption that there's something wrong with the gospel message. Therefore, I have to change it in order for more people to make it through that narrow gate. It's not attractive enough. What can I do to make it more attractive? But what Paul is saying is, no, 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 it's not the gospel message. It's that man, because of his sinful heart, is attracted to the wrong things. So don't give... Feed him more wrong things to be attracted to instead of the true gospel. The gospel has always been a straightforward, clear, simple message of hope. Even in the Old Testament, we have glimpses of what God's going to do. How he's going to save us from our own sin and darkness. Deuteronomy 30, when he says God will circumcise your heart, he's going to remove that. And we've read in the New Covenant, he takes the heart of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. And then he writes God's law, living law in our hearts. It's a tremendous thing. And then we, we just hear the straightforward, simple message of the gospel. We hear it again uh, by John the Baptist in the interim period between the two covenants in Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Gal- Galilee. Oops, wait a minute. John said, I jumped ahead to Jesus. John said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's his message. That's the good news. You get to repent. You have an opportunity to repent. This is the age where you are able to do this. That door will not be open forever. Then Jesus said the same thing. Now in in Mark 1, 14 through 15, John was arrested. Jesus comes into Galilee Proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Then we see the same thing with the apostles and specifically I'll quote Peter in Acts 2. Where he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So it's not the gospel message. Don't tamper with that. Don't tweak that. It's not even about the messenger. We talked this morning about pleasing man. Paul says, if I, if I was... In this to please man, I wouldn't be in it because it's not always a very pleasing thing. It's not this kind of ministry is not always pleasing people. It's stepping on people's toes. But I do it for God. I'm I'm, I'm preaching this for the sake of Christ. It's not the gospel. The, The problem is that people just don't want it, even though it's glorious. And so we don't have to. Think about creative ways to, to water it down, uh, to change it so it's more enticing to compromise it. And the fact of the matter is this. If we, if we keep making God's narrow gate, now God's using this terminology. That's what he called it. It's how he sees it from heaven's perspective. If we keep making God's narrow gate wider, there comes a time when it's no longer the gate of God. It's no longer the gate of eternal life, but Somewhere along the line, that gate became the gate that leads to destruction. And we have to be really careful 
with God's revelation that he has given to us and preserved over the years so that we are not actually preaching and teaching the wide path of destruction. I want to read a quote given by a a former pastor, Roy uh, Roy Clements, um, he was a British pastor, and this was spoken, no, it was written in the 1990s. He says, a preacher is a herald, and a herald is precisely a one-way communicator. He does not dialogue, he announces a message that he's received, But if our communication experts are correct, announcements do not change anybody. So here's where he's going with this. Where is the flow in their reason, their flaw in the reasoning? When we're talking about preaching the gospel, it lies in their theology. For people who agree like this are assuming that Christian preaching is analogous to a marketing exercise. You have your product, which is the gospel. And you have your consumers, which are the people. And the preacher is the salesman. And it's his job to overcome consumer resistance and persuade people to buy. And that's how we have to be careful, the slippery slope of how we look at the gospel and how we package the gospel and deliver the gospel message. Because if it's something that I can tweak to make you buy, to accept, then I am ignoring the spiritual aspect of the veil and the dominion and the power of Christ. He goes on to say, according to Paul, there's only one very simple but overwhelming reason why that analogy is not a good one. And it's this, the preacher doesn't overcome consumer resistance. He can't. Consumer resistance is far too large for any preacher to overcome. All the preacher does is to expose that resistance. The preacher doesn't save anybody. Evangelism has to be proclamation, not because it's a marketing concept, but because preaching is a sacrament of divine sovereignty. It, it's, it's, God has given us his message. God changes. God empowers. Not to say that we can't deliver His message winsomely. We want to do that. We want to be wise. We want to be considerate and smart in this. But it's the power of God. The gospel is the power of God to save. 1 Corinthians 2.14. So what is happening then? He says, when people remain under the veil, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the preacher's job, your job, the disciple's job, is not to overcome consumer resistance. It's actually to make that resistance, make people aware of the resistance that's in their hearts. Why? We want to provoke. We want people... The law, one of the purposes of the law is to make us so uncomfortable... We will repent, not to make us comfortable in our own sin, but to show us how displeasing we are to God. So what does the Apostle Paul pray as a preacher in Colossians chapter 4? He says, please pray for me. Please pray that I may make it clear the way I ought to speak. He wants to make sure he's not changing the gospel message. That's just plain and clear and simple as it was as it was proclaimed 
to him. It's he prays for gospel clarity for or in Ephesians, he says, please pray that I'll be bold. I've got the message, but I need to be courageous to share it and not shrink back. He, he sees himself as like the least powerful entity in the equation. I'm just the messenger. I'm just the servant. The power is God's. The message is God's. It doesn't matter. I don't need to build myself up and in some kind of flamboyant way so you'll believe in God. It's all of God. There's no need to make me or make the preacher and evangelist the hero. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. So Paul's point is clear, I think. It's the message. Preach it clearly. Share it boldly to those that are perishing. And the fact of the matter is, some will remain under the veil. And it's because of the spiritual dynamic that's taking place. It's because of, secondly, the God, small g, of the world. The scripture teaches us something very practical and useful to know. In their case, the God, small g, of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, yes, our own heart is our worst enemy when it comes to anything spiritual, anything pleasing to God. But it's not our only enemy. We also have the God of this world, an an additional being, an additional rebel with powers, powers that God has given, uh, a fallen angel, in fact, powers that God has given and He endeavors to keep us under the veil. He's busy at that. That's what he, that's his nature. It's evil. He is an unredeemable creature, by the way. Whereas man is redeemable. He's unrepentant. He will never repent. The fallen demons will never repent. Never recant. They are unredeemable. And so that's his endeavor. He is all about posing as God. He wants to take everything away from God. That's his evil, rebellious nature. To make God nothing, to make himself everything in his pride and arrogance. Scripture calls him the God of this age. Again, God works in seasons. He works in ages. Seasons come and seasons go. For right now, we are under this age. For we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John chapter 5. He is the prince of the power barrier. I read in Ephesians. The prince uh, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now in the work, work in the sons of disobedience. carrying out the desires of the body and the mind of the flesh who were once by nature child of wrath like the rest of mankind. So God in his infinite wisdom has allowed Satan to operate. It's an age. It's by the sovereign hand of God. God's still in control. He's not up there wringing his hands. Oh, what am I going to do? I got to keep drinking protein shakes to get enough strength to overpower this crazy nut. He's still in control Everything is working perfect. God can't be out of control. 
Everything is working perfectly according to His plan. I know we don't always understand it. That's why we trust in He who does. The Almighty God. Satan is the, is the God of schemes. He's, he's the sleight of hand God. I know it's uh, Halloween is upon us and you're going to see the devil. And you're going to see him in a red suit. And he's got a long pointy tail and he's got horns. And that is not how Satan wants to be seen. He is not that obvious. He's a whole lot smarter than that. He tricks. It's all, it's, it's scheming. And he has no scruples. He will do anything that it takes to keep us away from God, to rob God of his glory. Anything. So if, if it means a constant onslaught of shooting arrows of temptation, misery, whatever God allows into our lives to turn us away from God, he will make our lives as miserable as he can. On the other hand, if it means... Uh, uh, of being that fresh wind of air or, or giving you blessings and success and popularity and, and filling your heart with vanities. Well, he'd just soon do that and make your life as easy and comfortable as he possibly can because that also can keep us away from God. And he works primarily in the areas of knowing and desires. That's why we have to guard the desires of our heart because Satan is always in there. Tricking us, scheming us, saying, yes, if, if a little bit more of that will give your heart exactly what it longs for and desires. So, yes, indulge in this. Follow this. He works in these realms in the heart, our, our hopes, our ideals, our opinions, our decisions. He educates us through the means of the world. You better believe the latest technology that we have is an incredible blessing. But you better believe there's the prince of the power there that works in it and uses modern day technology to persuade us, to mislead us and to make false promises about the desires that can be had. I think as I wind down here to very uh, there's a scripture, I think, that just we, we need to always be mindful. It's very, very practical as we try to think about good and evil and how we frame the events of our lives. And it came from uh, Genesis 50 from Joseph, where he says, you meant it for my harm, but God meant it for my good. That's how our lives are framed. You have to know. You have to know Satan for who he is. He only means things for our harm, period. There is no good in him. And God, period, unequivocally, only means things for our good. Basic, basic theology. The God of this world, little g. John Piper says, God never has given and never will give to Satan any freedom that God himself does not restrain and decisively direct for his wise, just, and good purposes. In all his acts, Satan is subject to God's overruling and guiding providence. And then lastly, the God, big G, of this world. And I'll just close with this verse. We talked about it in Sunday school this morning. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here, here's another analogy. Where have we heard that terminology before? Back in Genesis, the creation of the universe, when God, it says the spirit was hovering over 
There was darkness. There was chaos. There was not this order that we see now. There was not this beauty that we see now. So the spirit was hovering. And then God in his infant wisdom decided to speak and said, let there be light. And there was other things that he said, let there be. Paul is taking that incredible, glorious, supernatural happening and saying, this is what happens on a human level when people turn to the Lord. It's, it's a miracle. It's supernatural. The spirit is hovering. And then God speaks into that individual, says, let there be light. And now the veil, the, the veil is removed. It's a work of God, the merciful, gracious, loving God that calls us into his kingdom. From darkness to light. Now we begin to know. Now we can begin to see. And now our desires can be adjusted, if you will, into the right things. And our love can be set on Christ. Interesting that John Piper's whole ministry is called Desiring God. May we desire God as we understand His glorious truths. As we warm up and give ourselves to the presence of the power of His Holy Spirit. In our hearts. See, that's how the whole world isn't swallowed up in darkness. Because of the presence of God. And the God of light. May God bless the preaching of his word.